0: Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Drip. Welcome back to the Leadership Drip. My buddy Rob's here at the table with me as always. Yes. As always. As always. As always. We are welcoming to the table one of the coolest guys that we've met. His name is Ben Corson. He is the founder of Hope Generation. He's an author, a TV personality, radio personality, international speaker, and recently I found out that he just became the senior pastor of Applewood Christian Fellowship, which is exciting. So he's nice. got a lot going on. A Lot going on, and and he's a skateboard guy. So I know your boy skateboard, Rob.
1: My boy skateboard, SoCal vibes, right? So so uh, favorite old school skateboarder for me. You can name yours. Christian Asoy, I love the dude he's there in SoCal shout out to Christian but just man what a great story from him so who's your favorite old school skateboarder
2: oh gosh so I actually I really got into Tony Hawk Pro Skater for Nintendo 64 does anybody remember that
1: I do yeah of course so like I liked Jamie Mora
2: or was it Jamie Thomas or Jamie Mora I think
1: Jamie Mora Mora maybe I think Mora sounds right yeah yeah,
2: something like that. I'm honestly not that versed in like old school skaters, but as far as like today, um, I, my favorite is Beaver Fleming. He invented the Fleming flip, so he does a backflip, and yeah. while he's doing a backflip with his body, he like does a tech deck finger flip with his board. So he'll flip, do a backflip with his fingers in his board, and with his board catch it in his hand, does the backflip with his body and lands, and he's one of my best friends, so I gotta shout him out. Okay,
1: oh, that's very awesome. Cool. Very cool. Well good reason for the record i am a little bit older than you so <laughs> my old school and your old school are probably different <laughs> old schools i'm a tony hawk but, guy but i remember when tony hawk i remember when lance mountain i remember when christian desoy i remember when these guys came out yeah it was, it was just crazy so like kareem
2: yeah. campbell but you know what no you know who's my real favorite old school skater It's darth Maul. and you have to be a true <laughs> tony hawk fan to understand that If you could unlock this character, Darth Maul from Star Wars, and you could do like a force grab and stuff. So that's my real old school like
0: favorite. (laughs) Wow.
1: Cool. Cool, cool.
0: You've mentioned on some of your videos that skateboarding is really one of the things that helped kind of, I hate to overstate it, but save your life. Tell us how skateboarding has been sort of a critical component to that.
2: Yeah, that gives me chills. It really does because who would have thought like, Um, And I'm sure we'll get into this a little later, but I went through over a decade of suicide ideation and clinical depression, and I tried to think my way out of it. Mm. Like like I tried to – this is a very difficult thing to do, to overthink your way out of despair. And so what happened is it wasn't more ontological, metaphysical discussion. It wasn't more existential navel-gazing. Because I love to read, like philosophy. This morning I was reading William James, of philosopher over a hundred years ago, who talks about the difference like monism and pluralism and pragmatism. I love reading, but Nietzsche wasn't getting me out of depression. Do you understand? Like, yeah. like yeah. Kierkegaard wasn't wasn't taking away my my intellectual nausea. What really healed me of depression was a bunch of crazy friends from California who just grabbed their skateboards, didn't talk to me too much about my trauma. They just showed me that life could be fun again, and the thing that I love about skateboarding is I'm, first of all, I'm terrible at it, but it doesn't matter. It's like a holy of holies on the go to me. It's like, it's like a moving meditation and it's inherently intrinsically anti establishment. But usually when you think of something that's anarchic, you think of like, you think of cynical and skeptical, yeah. and like move to Brooklyn, roll yeah. your eyes, postmodernist, self-referential, wink into the camera. But the thing about skateboarding is it's a joyous rebellion. And I love that idea. In fact, I wrote a whole book based on that premise called Optimists, and that's what it is. You're a misfit, but you're an optimist. And, uh, and skateboarding really introduced me to this whole new world. In fact, I just thought of this, a whole new world, like Aladdin, you know, the song, a whole new world, the <laughs> magic carpet ride. One of my friends, he says, he says, you have to ride this board like a magic carpet. You know, trust the board. Like when you're getting the speed wobbles, trust the yeah. board, it's a magic carpet. And it really feels like
0: that.
1: Oh, the speed wobbles.
0: I, listen, I can't skateboard you're it's from Chicago, I, so listen, it's not that we didn't have skateboards. it's just that <laughs> I couldn't do it Hey,
1: my last skate my last real skateboarding experience I dropped in on an eight foot uh, half pipe, and, oh wow, and so I went one way, my knee went the other way, blew it completely yeah. out, and that was my last real skateboard experience, and that's been a while, so we won't talk about that.
2: Well, right down the right down the road, there's a church that that me and my friends went to at night. It has this hill, and uh, and I, at night, like there were no lights except for my EDM and my iPhone flashlight. And my friends like, don't go down that, which made me like, I have to do that. You to have Jesus to do it. I have to. So I did, and I tore my AC and had to like. I remember I was traveling to Pittsburgh to speak, and I was in this preaching in a sling and all of that. So. I'm terrible at it. It's more the metaphor and just the joy of it that I'm stoked about.
1: That's cool. Yeah. Well, hey, let's let's kind of dive into something a little bit deeper. And you've already kind of mentioned a little bit of your story. I know it's a lot deeper than than what you've mentioned on the 30 seconds here on the show, but but your suicidal ideation, which is obviously a mental health crisis that we're facing in in this generation, especially I think now more than ever. I think the the metrics are somewhere between 35 to 40% of incoming college freshmen state Christian schools across the board um, deal with mental diagnosable mental health issues. So from your perspective, as you're kind of leading, talking and working through uh, with with a lot of younger adults, younger generation, um, what are some of those things that you're seeing kind of evolve and uh, kind of rise up to to the top of the surface when it comes to this mental health conversation? Like, what are the things that are pressing you right now?
2: Well, one of the things is social media. I mean, sociologists tell us that one of the chief reasons why we're so depressed is in fact because of social media. And, and the stats are staggering. I mean, there's twice as many suicides as murders. Right. So you, you are twice as likely to kill yourself than like, you know, a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Ted Bundy killing you. Not only that, there's 123 suicides a day in America alone, according to USA Today. In 2017, suicide was the second leading cause of death in my age group and there's a suicide once every 40 seconds. So I don't know who in- interviewed like the 14th century Burgundians to confirm this fact, but basically we're supposedly, according to sociological data, the most depressed generation to ever live. Mm. And um, that's why I'm so passionate about hope. And one of the chief questions I could ask is like, why, are you, why is your generation so depressed? Um, one of the chief reasons is because through social media, what happens is it's not just that we compare our behind the scenes with other people's highlight reels it's that we do it at unfair intervals. So when I'm watching your story of you partying, I'm stuck at a red light or doing homework. Yeah. Uh, when you're watching me skating and having a blast, you're, 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 you're in a place where you're like bored to tears. So we're not only comparing our minds to other people's highlight reels, we're doing it at unfair intervals. And what's happening is we're projecting this avatar or image to the world that isn't who we really are always, you know, we're all catfishing each other. It's been said that, you know, uh, it used to be that girls had to live up to the models they saw in magazines. Now girls just have to live up to their own Facebook profile. And I think there's a, there's a truth in that we're all having this cognitive dissonance of trying to project something that isn't true to who we are in many cases. And that's why. What I have really tried to do through social media is every day post something about hope or that will give a pep in the step or encouragement, nourishment, or give people a more bold, audacious, sacred optimism, Jesus, joy, holy happiness, calm, delight. So, um, but I think that the, the interesting thing about social media to me and the cause of depression that's derivative in that is basically that like, like, uh, social media was initially meant to connect us, right? Like that was its initial intent if you look at any great invention it usually doesn't uh x and a helo create something out of nothing it can't all it does is intensify pre-existing human capacities and capabilities so like if you take a car henry ford didn't invent motion or locomotion he just sped it up if you look at a microphone that didn't invent the human voice it just made it louder social media didn't invent connection or fellowship or friendship it just it just turned the volume up but Mm. what happens is if you turn the volume up too loud on technology, it actually destroys the very expansion on these pre-existing human capacities that it was trying to increase. So what I mean is this, if you have too many cars and you're in LA at 5 p.m., you can actually walk faster than you can drive and it actually slows you down. Or if you turn up the volume too loud on a microphone, you get feedback and the ringing will make it harder to hear the human voice. If, if you turn up social media too loud, the very connection becomes comparison and we're actually lonelier than ever before. So right. that's why I just think understanding the modulation of social media can help us to use it in a healthier way and not be so depressed.
1: That's good. It's
0: interesting, Ben, because, and I want to press on this, you you are a self-professed uh, social influencer, social media influencer. It's, it's part of what your message is and how you expand it. How have you navigated the tension of being in the platform, being a voice on the platform, and the excess that the platform has created.
2: Yeah. So, have you guys seen Twenty Four? Remember Jack Bauer? Twenty yeah. Four. Okay. So during season three, he goes undercover, and he acts like a drug he, he pretends to be a drug addict. But in order to do this, he had to actually get on drugs. And so when he was done with his mission, he still had a, he had a difficult time getting off the very drugs. That he was trying to bust like the drug cartel that he was trying to bust so he became addicted to the very thing he was trying to destroy and that's what i found initially with social media there was a time where like so this is this is the thing that we have to understand social media it triggers a dopamine loop in your brain which is the same chemical that drugs induce and that's why it's addictive and it also is the same uh chemical and rush that gambling produces so you know how like the the social um the social problem, what's up the Netflix thing, social dilemma, dilemma. shows this. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you know how when you, you refresh your feed, your finger is doing the same movement as going up to a slot machine. And the reason for that is because when you go on social media, it produces a dopamine loop, which is the same chemical gambling produces. Because when you gamble, go to a slot machine, you don't know if you're going to win or if you're going to lose. And that's the addictive rush. That's how social media is. When you refresh your feed, you don't know what you're going to see. You don't know if it's going to encourage you or make you feel less about yourself, or it's going to be someone crying, and then you feel better about yourself, or it's a thumbs up, (laughs) a thumbs down, a nice comment, a mean comment, it's a gambling addictive rush. And so what was happening to me is I started to uh, get addicted to the very mechanism that I was trying to, you know, use to destroy the despair in comparison that was created Mm. by it. So I was kind of lost in this labyrinthine maze. And what happened is I discovered this very beautiful thing. That you can actually delete your Instagram app, and and not delete your account. So I started to learn that when I just deleted the app, my account was still there. But that way, my, my ghost finger, when it tries to go to Instagram to scroll without me even of my own volition, voluntarily decided to do so, it's like a subliminal, subconscious mechanism. What happened is I found, oh, I'm not, I don't have to be addicted to it. The account's still there, and so now, like social media is purely a tool and not something that's using me as the product.
1: That's good, man. That's really good. So so this whole kind of emotional health tied to social media, tied to this uh, comparison sort of conversation uh, that we're talking about, and it's very real, and understanding the power b- between the addiction and the opportunity, right? Because I think that's essentially what we're talking about, especially yeah. with the uh, onslaught of TikTok, and especially in the last year or so with TikTok, I think. Yeah. I think a lot of people are jumping onto that medium now and and God bless them. I think that's great um, to use that as a platform. And I think we should. So, so how do we sort of navigate? And I know you've kind of talked about this already, but, but I do think that there's a, a conversation that needs to be had, especially from a evangelistic standpoint in terms of being or maximizing these kinds of tools for the sake of the gospel. Right? So, so not only is there the addiction factor, but there's also the, perhaps maybe, I don't even know, do I want to say it, the sin factor perhaps of creating your own idolatrous image and using the gospel perhaps as a platform to make that a reality? I don't know. So maybe speaking yeah. a little bit of, of what you're seeing yeah. in terms of, of how we're using that tool to, to promote Christ. Well,
2: when you talk about the idolatry of social media, like think of idolatry and just do a lowercase I and an uppercase D like idolatry. And then you have your, you know, your product like idolatry, iPhone, iPhone, you know what I mean? And what's interesting is this, you talked about creating this image. Well, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that word in Greek is icon. And it was used of a person's portrait or likeness. And that's the same uh, idea that's used of us when it says we are not only quorum deil, living in the face of God, but we're a Mago Dei. We're made in his image. Now, the interesting thing is that word image of God in, in the Hebrew language is Selem Elohim. And it was used of kings and priests who would mediate blessings to their kingdom. And what's fascinating about that is maybe that's why God said, make no graven images of me. Why? Because he's already made images of himself. Mm. And that's you and me. We're made in the image of God. Yeah. So like when we see a guy walking a dog, are like, oh, cute, a puppy. When God sees a guy walking a dog, he's like, oh, cute, a human. That's my finest creation. That human yeah. is in my image. So I think that what happens is when we're not happy with the image, that the divine image that God has impressed upon our very identity, then we feel this need to project it out of insecurity to the world. And the very tool that we were once trying to use to give people hope implodes in on itself and it actually creates an ID crisis in our own head. So that's why I'm a big believer. In using social media, whatever platform you have, and, and this is true. Most of my friends are, you know, they are social media influencers. So I, I think that it can be used for good, but I think we need to take our, our mentality from Paul. So what Paul did is he, he was like the opposite of John the Baptist, right? Like John the Baptist was a voice crying in a wilderness. Like he would not have had an iPhone probably. Right. Paul the Apostle would have. I mean, he was very aware of sports. Like he probably had, would have had the ESPN app. There were the Pan Ionian games in Ephesus. The Athenian Games in Corinth, the Olympic Games in Athens. He talks about like running epic time ominous, which is a racing term in Philippians 3. That was the most popular sport like Gar NFL in his day. And so he was very like on the cutting edge of stuff. Um, in fact, he, he was using the Persian mailing system, the Roman roads, the dictation of letters. That was the highest technology that, that was around back then. And what did he use that technology for? to spread his message. And I think that if we'll use technology as a means of spreading our message and connecting with people who are doing the same thing that we are, we'll not only be able to give hope to the world using these technological means, but we'll also find others who are doing the same thing that we are, and then we can join forces and and put a dent in the kingdom of darkness.
0: Yeah, I I, I think that's great, Ben. Thanks for sort of laying that out. I, I wanna shift gears and talk about Hope Generation. It's really kind of what you're best known for uh, what what led you to the creation of that? What led to the videos and the YouTube platform, which is so well done? If, if you've not watched Ben's videos on on YouTube, they are um, creative works of art. Most of, most all of them are. They're amazing. What led to starting that?
2: By the way, that means a lot because, like, I I'm really a big believer in the Church era of the Renaissance with Queen Elizabeth and. Michelangelo and Vincent van Gogh and Raphael with the Sistine Madonna like when the church was actually hiring on The top-notch artists to not be a subculture following the world But to actually shape the very zeitgeist of art in the world so that means a lot because that's our goal like we want to use the means of YouTube and and video creation to spread hope to people Here's the thing um, when I was in middle school, I saw Lord of the Rings and it baptized my imagination. Mm. When I was in high school, I saw revenge of the Sith when Anakin turned to the dark side and it gave me like God used that as an impetus and catalyst to give me vision for my entire future to like dream cast and vision into my future. Um, so I know the power of videos and movies and what that's had on me. And so that's why like just a couple weeks ago we finished our 200th tv episode and and uh and we have you know i don't know 200 short films almost almost 200 and i think the the reason i'm so passionate about this is because i i know the creative power of being made in the image of god that like if he's the creator and he made us in his image like we're not going to be happy unless we're creating we're going to burn in our own creative fire and it's going to become a fiery tribulation we got to let it out so I have so much I want to say about hope. And I also want to use it not only as a visceral, but a visual means of helping people to understand who the God of hope is. And like, so, so I have this message that I'm so passionate about that I want people to see God as the God of hope. Romans 15, 13, because how you perceive God dictates how you receive from God. And so using art um, is a way that connects with not just our generation, but I think every generation to receive a message rather than just me telling you when I can show you I think that's when it becomes even more
0: potent. Yeah, so
1: you, you just mentioned something I think something that's absolutely critical and uh you said how we re- perceive God is how we receive God. And I think I think when we start talking about Gen Z, the generation certainly here on the college campus that we're trying to reach, there's a perception of God that is that I think is both skewed and probably even somewhat incorrect. Because of the how do we how do I want to say it? Just say it. The (laughs) the generation, our generation, right? Sorry, so Jeff's and I are a little older, but our generation's sort of MO of of casting God in a certain light, right? So I, I think there's a there's a perception problem that we have. So as how do we begin to recreate the narrative of how Gen Z is is perceiving God, so that they can receive from God in in His trueness, in His holiness, and His righteousness, it's like the the real God, not not the. And listen, uh, well, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll have to edit. I would have to edit that out of the show. But the point <laughs> is, the point is, there are there are certain. I don't, man. I'm struggling with this. So, because so I'm, trying are, around, I'm trying to dance you're around. Trying to dance around a difficult there, topic. There
0: are there have been voices from our generation the generation ahead of ours that have falsely created perceptions of God that Gen Z is not buying into.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you, and Jeff. What, and what would you say
2: those perceptions are? Like, are, are you talking like legalistic perceptions or like what kind of these yes. theological predispositions? I think, I think it's theologically
1: predispositions of of God always – always desires that you're prosperous in everything that you do. And I know that that's a oh, large statement. Um, or, or that by following Christ, these things are going to be all automatic in your life. And oh, we I know see. they're not. So I think, I think one of the, this kind of ties into the mental health conversation, because I think one of the big uh, perception issues that we have about the faith, about Christ, about God, is that all things will be automatically um, different by default when we accept him as a savior, right? But in reality, what happens is, is yes, of course, Jesus saves us when we confess our sins and we believe with our mouth and you can walk the Roman road, whatever, right? Of course that happens. We're saved, but that doesn't necessarily change all of the circumstances around our world, our culture. And so I think there's a, there's a missing link between learning how to embrace the struggle and the tension of what it means to be a believer here now not necessarily just, just all of the, the fun, frilly stuff that we, that we associate. Am I making any sense?
0: You are. And, and so Bonhoeffer calls it the deed of discipleship. That's true. So, so how do we help this generation who, who wants and desires the Savior do the deed of discipleship?
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting because the word disciple means disciplined one. Like, that's literally what it means, disciplined one. Yeah. And I think that if we don't have discipline and we don't go into this, like Navy SEAL Team 6, MI5 DEFCON 1, like Army Ranger, Paratrooper, Heroic Snow, Joyful Soldier, Happy Warrior, Like, if we don't go into this with the right mindset, like, it, I think what to, to your point, like, if we wake up thinking we're on a cruise ship, we're going to be really confused when fiery darts are coming at us because yeah. we're not on a cruise ship. We're on a battleship. And that's why I'm a huge believer in like John Hicks, Iranian soul-making theodicy, which means when you're going through the veil of tears, every adversity you go through forges your spirit into steel and tempers your soul into iron so that you can come to the full maturation of the likeness of God and the fullness of the the full stature of Christ as Paul said. So I, I think what I what really want to encourage people is like, do not be surprised by your fiery trials because walking with God does not mean you're not going to get through hard stuff. And the reason why I know that is not only because the Bible says like in the world, you will have tribulation, right? Because like in my own life, you know, my, my, what do I do about the fact that like my sister died and my brother died Mm -hmm. and my dad's first wife died and my pastor friend committed suicide and, I went through a romantic heartbreak after an eight year relationship that made me think I'd never be happy again. I literally have a protester who stalks me and he did this to my dad too, but he protested so loud a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago at a Florida event digitally that I was doing that he caused a car accident. You know, I remember talking to my counselor, I got diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. uh, And and literally my counselor said, you have one of the most difficult cases of depression I've ever had to treat. So I want to say like two things. Number one, I'm a, I'm a, like a really loud example to the fact that you can love God and go through really horrible things. I'm not like my message of hope is not predicated upon, Hey, it's just going to be airy, fairy, happy, clappy, wishy washy, you know, high in the sky, sunny with the 75, like unicorns are going to shoot rainbows out of their eyes. And it's just all going to be a sunbeam. The truth is, is it's, there's times where like, I wanted to take, I almost did take my own life. But, but the but the converse is also true, and that is that on our very worst day with God, we're better off than on our best day without God, because I do believe that when we're going through our worst, God is planning his best. And so my message to people is like, so many people are like, man, you have so much hope. Well, my message is, yes, if God could give me hope and heal my broken heart, he can heal anybody. So I just want to tell people, though, like, don't be surprised by fiery trials and fiery darts you know it's funny because back in the day um back in ancient warfare like they would dip their darts and their arrows in asp venom in like snake venom Mm -hmm. and they would shoot it at the enemy so when you got hit by this dart the asp venom would go into your body and it burned like fire so when paul said you know block the fiery darts of the shield of faith of the wicked one like there's like the the snake that we're fighting genesis 3 has this asp venom in these arrows this this like snake venom and it's up to us to hold, hold up and hoist up that shield of faith which by the way was constructed in such a way that it would link up with the shields of the soldiers flanking you to your right and your left so you could like march on the enemy like a solid wall and that's why the shield of faith is not a solitary it's a solidarity kind of thing it's like you're standing together with your brothers and sisters so i just want to like kind of be a general as it were for our generation and say stand your ground four times in ephesians 6 talking about spiritual warfare paul said stand like we need to stand our ground we need to link up our shields of faith not just digitally as great as that is but personally and realistically and march upon the enemy like a solid wall and not just be in it for the thrills and frills but realize there's going to be tribulation. We're in a battle, but the victory belongs to God. He's a warrior, and therefore, as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, we inherit the triumph vicariously too.
0: Yeah, Ben. So let's,
1: I'm going to have I, to go watch 300 again because, yeah, there you go, because, right? <laughs> and just you know, cover your eyes and certain cover parts. eyes in certain parts. Uh, yeah,
0: slow down with me, Ben, and let's talk about you. You really quickly went through some really uh, the the hard things of your life: the loss of uh, some siblings, the loss of um, you said your your dad's first wife and the loss of a friend. And, and what's interesting is, and we talk about this a lot, is is a lot of people will hear that and they go, "Well, I'm I'm glad Ben got through that, but I can't." Yeah, like they get stuck in their own their own situation. What would you say to somebody who is walking through some of those fiery trials who right now can't see hope or see light or see that it's ever going to get better? What encouragement do you have to either the young adult listening? or the pastor who's at the end of his rope?
2: Yeah, so this is actually really encouraging. Hebrews 12.1 says, run the race with endurance, because Jesus endured the cross from the joy that was set before him. That idea of endurance or perseverance is so integral and intrinsic to the nature of our hope enterprise. We like, you don't have to be David Goggins or Chad Williams or like Marcus Luttrell or Chris Kyle or a Navy SEAL to get through your battle because God's commandments are God's enablements. So if God commands us to endure, he enables us to endure. He's not going to tell us to do something that he's not going to give us the power to do. Mm -hmm. And so what's really interesting is there's this uh, psychologist named Angela Duckworth, who um, di- who found that across a range of indexes, it's perseverance. She defined it as grit, like endurance or perseverance toward very long-term goals. Like I mean, very long-term goals is more of an indicator of success than good looks, social IQ, um, health, or intelligence. So so literally more than like being good-looking, healthy, having a high IQ, or being socially connected or whatever. Um, it's literally just your ability to persevere. And so this is, this, this really is the center of everything, not giving up. Mm. It's that simple. Like do like, this is simplicity after complexity. Do not give up. That is more of a predictor of flourishing across a range of indexes than any of these other things. It's perseverance. Do not give up, give everything, but up, give everything, but up give your relationships to God, your heart to God, your money, your life to God, whatever, but don't give up. Give everything yeah. but up. Don't give in. Don't give up. Give it everything you've got. Like that message, it, that, that's literally historically what has solved the world's problems. It's like Albert Einstein said, it's not that I'm so smart. I just stick to problems longer. I stick with problems longer. Like we're such an instant gratification generation. We forgot the the beauties of delayed gratification, which by the way, is why I love reading Dostoevsky and Immanuel Kant, you know, like I love reading John Locke and these dead authors who are like ghosts coming up from their sepulchres with like, you know, their, their, their graveyard with like keys of wisdom in their hands and treasure troves under their arms, because there's something so satisfying about enduring and persevering and going for long-term things. And so I think like with this instant dopamine loop, addictive rush of you know, social media and Uber eats and Netflix, as great as all these things are, I think our pain tolerance as a generation is getting lower. And so when we encounter troubles, we don't know how to handle it. And that's why I think like nerve, like stealing our nerves and, and using our adversity to forge our soul into steel is what will help us to not give up during the hard times. And it really is that simple. Like do not give up no matter what it takes. Don't give up.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I like the the Duck Angela Duckworth uh, research that she's done. I, I've actually encountered her research quite a bit, and so the conversation on grit, Kuzes and Posner also talk about a lot in their leadership work about the importance of not giving up, the importance of grit. So I think I think we're right on track with that. So the challenge then is in a generation that doesn't have a real healthy, keen sense of value of perseverance, right? Uh, which is obviously a biblical narrative that we need to embrace. So what are some things that you're doing, like maybe just some pragmatic conversations or some pragmatic sort of uh, tools that you can you can help some with in order to begin to build that grit, in order to, mm-hmm. besides training with SEALs, right? So I'm a former Marine, so I know what that's like. Oh, wow. But, wow.
2: but, but yeah,
1: on. not everybody can, is going to go train with the SEALs. But But yeah. in that process of that type of training, you learn grit, you learn perseverance, you learn the camaraderie, you learn locking the shields in the shields of faith. And you know what that means. But for the average college student out here who's sitting alone in their dorm, for the average uh, person who's attending church and doesn't really know why they're there because they can't even find a church they like, it meets their needs or whatever. How do we help them begin to embrace this idea of grit, perseverance, endurance in their faith?
2: Wow, I love that. Semper Fi, man. I love I love talking to military minds because you you know I just I have a hard time adapting into regular society. But whenever I'm with my SEAL friend Chad or talking to Marines, a lot of times it's like there's a sense of empathic bond that you can tap into. Um, I'm gonna actually give two because I I wrote a book about this where uh, I lay out eleven weapons to defeat the dark order of depression, like practical tools. I'll just point out two of them though on opposite ends of the spectrum. One is highly mystical the other is very practical so the mystical one is prayer walks
0: okay mm-hmm. this
2: has been huge in helping me this is in fact the biggest thing that's helped me to persevere in my own life because scientific research now shows that when you talk to god about your hopes fears and dreams it has the same effect on your brain as therapy that's true um he's the wonderful counselor and his therapy's free you're not gonna like fork over 150 bucks and wonder if the counselor is going to talk about Oedipus complexes and Freudian daddy issues in Jungian dream analysis or Frankel's logotherapy or something, you know that there's actually going to be a cathartic therapeutic healing balm of Gilead, Jehovah Rafi's is the God who heals. There's something very healing about literally talking to God about your hopes, fears, and dreams. And like, if you read the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalm is full on gossip to God, like about their enemies. And I think that, I like, you can be that real with God. We're chill with the almighty. We're besties with the maker. Like if you gossip to God, God's like, oh my gosh, she said that about you. Like, I can't believe that juicy D. Now I'm going to look at her totally differently. You know what I mean? Like he already knows. (laughs) So you can, you can pour out your heart to God and talk to him about your hurts. and He turns your wounds into wisdom, your scars into stars. I really have found that in my life. And by the way, you know, really cool magnetic resonance imaging research is showing us that like when you brain scan people who pray, if they meditate on a loving God, they have richer, thicker gray matter that mm. are developed in their prefrontal cortex, which is where creative thinking is. You know, they have more blood flow to the interior cingulate cortex, which is where empathy and compassion are located because you're not going to put someone on your ultimate hit list who you put on your prayer list. You have less like uh, activity in your amygdala, which is the rat brain where fear, anger, stress, high blood pressure are so... Literally, like neuroplasticity is a real thing. You can change your brain and you can actually do this through prayer. If you see him as a loving God, then, then you'll actually have these benefits for your brain. So that's like one thing, kind of mystical, like go on prayer walks, like just walk with God. Like Enoch walked with God. and was translated up. I think that should be our goal every time we pray. And then the second one is super practical. And that is, um, remember when Paul said, I make my body my slave? Like I just finished a book about Alexander the Great where it said he had this strange impression that his body was a slave to his spirit. Paul said, I beat my body this injection. There's something about physical, and you'll understand this as a marine 100%, but when you push your body to its limits, your spirit you start to like practice more self-control and you start to take greater control over your life. So a 40 minute jog research says has the same effect on your brain as an antidepressant. Wow. That's wild. Because what happens is you, you release endorphins in your body, which activate opioid receptors in your brain, which are like natural painkillers. They minimize discomfort, can help to do that, and act like the drug morphine. So I think there's something really powerful about like what I don't like. Everyone has their different way of exercising, whether that's going on walks or going on runs, whether that's training with SEALs or Marines, or whether that's lifting weights, or you're sitting alone in your dorm and you're doing push-ups while listening to this. Like, like I, I think... God put these natural pain killing chemicals in our body that clear the cobwebs from our mind. And I think like, if we practice this body spirit duality, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of power in finding healing there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The the thing about physical exercise and I've had times of being really good about it and times of struggling with it and times of trying to return to it, which is the time (laughs) I'm in right now is there's a cognitive choice to do it. Like you don't accidentally exercise, you know, yeah, right. you have to make a decision to be active. Um, I think part, right. the prayer walks the same thing. In prayer, you 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 don't ever accidentally pray. You have to make a conscious decision to go. I'm going to have a communication with God. Um, yeah. So I think that's part of the perseverance piece is is making these conscious decisions to do so in the disciplines we talked about becoming a disciple. Um, and perseverance is just making the choice over and over and over. And, and even when you don't want to, and even when you don't feel like it, even when you didn't sleep well, even when everything's going great or going bad, it's making the decisions to do the disciplines that makes you a disciple.
1: But it's also the perception piece that Ben was talking about, because it matters if you're praying to a loving God, or if you're praying to a judgmental God that That's you're afraid true. of, or if you're yeah. praying for a God that you don't think is even accessible, tangible or approachable, yeah. right? So, so I think all of those things play right. into, to the health piece of it.
2: You're right. And that's like the moralistic therapeutic deism that the sociologist Christian Smith talked about where you're like, Oh, God's not really involved. I'll give him a quick nod, like whatever. Right. And, and that's, that's not accessible. Um, and I agree with you on that. And you know what else, what you were saying about decisions, we, we literally make 35,000 choices every day mm-hmm. and uh, and movement creates motivation. It's not the other way around. Yeah. So often, We wait to be motivated and then we move. It's the other way around. Movement creates motivation. So you just start going and the motivation often follows. So I I just think that's such a big deal because if you look at the Bible, like Paul was constantly using sports and athletic metaphors, not only warfare metaphors, but like he talked about the mastery, which was wrestling. He talked about wrestling. He talked about shadow boxing. He talked a lot about the Bible talks a lot about running. Um, And I think. When we start to approach our life from that disciplined disciple disciplined one mindset, um, it ha- we we just realize we have a lot more power than we think we do. The Bible actually says when you uh, you know Jesus told his disciples wait in Jerusalem and the Spirit will fall upon you from on high with power. That word power in Greek is dunamos, which yeah. is where we get the word dynamite. In fact, when Paul said when I am weak, then am I strong? That word strong literally in Greek is dynamite. Like we have dynamic power within us that we can tap into and we host the very presence of god as the temple for the holy spirit so like i just want to always encourage people to tap into that yeah
0: that's good
1: that's good good. so let's talk about briefly there's a couple of questions uh conversations that we still want to have because this is so good but but very briefly i think you kind of mentioned a parts of the book but the book itself is actually called flirting with darkness that's your newest book uh that just came out recently which we encourage uh people get in Get engaged with, pick up, and read because it addresses mental health. It, it addresses uh, the suicidality conversation that we're talking about, and and really back to this this kind of the starting point and why that's so important right now, especially with the mm-hmm. upcoming generation. So you mentioned parts of the book, but I just want to make sure that we mention the book itself so that uh, people can get it can get a hold of it now. Uh, let's kind of transition into another sort of aspect of conversation here. And that is recently you became a senior pastor of a local church. Now I find, first of all, I think this is absolutely amazing. I love it because uh, there are a lot of assumptions. We make the assumption that if you're Insta famous, or if you're a YouTube star that you don't do the local church thing. Right. And we need to debunk a lot of those myths. In fact, a lot of the people we have on the show, I'd say almost all of them, if not all of them, no matter who they are, uh, Hannah Gronowski, whoever, like the people we've talked to this year, all of them are engaged in local church. And so it's so cool to see someone like you who has sort of that social media platform, YouTube channel, uh, TBN access. I mean the whole nine yards in terms of the front, but you're a local church guy. And I love that about you. Jeff and I love that about you say it all the time on the show that we're, you know, we're local church fans. And so, uh, kind of tell us how this evolved itself. How did you step into this role of becoming a local church pastor?
2: Well, it, it literally, I wish I could say, you know, uh God told me I would do this or something. It it what it, it was actually my dad's like, time to retire. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, <laughs> like that it's it's honestly that simple. Next
1: like, up, right? So, Next. So,
0: Next. so we have a friend named Chris Dursa who's in uh New York, yeah, New New York. York. Queens. He he had a very similar situation. Yeah. He's like, you know, his dad was getting ready to retire, and Chris had like this idea for a new name of the church. And he goes, "Okay, well, next week you're the man." So
2: <laughs> it's 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 just wild and yeah. um And to tell you the truth, like I do, I do still live on airplanes. I I still travel. I go back and forth. But I will tell you the benefit of um, being involved, being being based out of Southern Oregon is it does keep you grounded in a good way like it 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 allows you to have that sort of i don't like the word accountability because that that is so much baggage attached to it but it it does have that element of it keeps you from going off the rails like i i think we've seen people who've traveled and have kind of gone gone off the rails a time or two and uh not that that can't happen when you're involved in a local church but i do think there is something very grounding about each week, you know, coming back to this church um, mm-hmm. and seeing the same people and then traveling and meeting new people and that kind of back and forth. Literally, I just, I mean, I just have a Persian cat who was in here a few minutes ago. He's like a little tiger looking, flat faced, fat little cat. His <laughs> name's Fridge. Like he's my only responsibility. So I share joint custody with my parents and them because I'm gone so much. So it allows me to be able to throw my entire life into going back and forth between the local church and the, and the yeah. broader church.
0: I want, I want to come back to a conversation we had when we, we addressed the Hope Generation in the videos. How has your love and passion for the arts been sort of grafted into the local church of where you're at?
2: So our entire team is based out of, uh, the local church. So our, literally our TV producer, our TV editor, our videographer, our other videographer, our admin, our assistant admin, we're all based out of this church. And, and, um, and and back to what I was saying with the Renaissance, man, like it's now, nowadays, let's just, let's be, let's be honest. When you, when you lit, when you hear the word phrase Christian music, or when you hear the phrase Christian movie, certain uh insinuations are attached to that now i'm not saying i'm not saying there aren't instances where they can rise up to a high level but but there is a sub I mean, wouldn't you guys agree that a lot of times there's kind of a subculture yeah. <laughs> thing there
0: we but have a lot we, of we, times, we know I'm some not people trying in to that criticize. field
2: <laughs> yeah well well to be honest like i have i have friends who are you know actors and are involved in the local church or or uh musicians in the christian world and they're doing fantastic but i'm saying as a whole i right. think we need to like raise it up and i think my friends agree with this as well and, and you guys know what i'm saying so um it but it used to be like could you imagine if the church said we need a painting so uh uh san Francisco church saint madonna you know who we're gonna we're gonna hire we mm. or like like hey we need we need the ceiling of our church we need a painting done the Sistine Chapel so who should we get michelangelo or like we need a statue at the church like who's going to who's going to sculpt david on this statue let's have michelangelo do that too you know like oh we want to paint a picture of jesus with his with his 12 disciples eating the last supper okay let's use da vinci you know like that is wild that's wild that used to be how it was so, five hundred years ago, the church was using these people, and that 's why I want to bring that back like I want yeah. to bring that back and right. and i want I want our church to be no, like known as we're putting the best art out there, and that's definitely our goal so I'm, you can probably sense how zealous I am about that, but the church used to be that way five hundred years ago, so I say, why not again
1: yeah and i I agree with you, one of my favorite books uh written by Erwin McManus. Uh, called Unstoppable Force. I don't know if you've read that book, but
2: well, he's an artist. Yeah. He's an
1: artist, but he. But I guess maybe, uh, gosh, maybe the book is even 15 years old now. Maybe something like that. At least, yeah, it's it's at least that old. But but even in that book, 15, 20 years ago, you know, Irwin was talking about this reclaiming of the arts in the local church before social media, even before really the internet was quote you know everywhere and everything, yeah. right? So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't have the exact date on that, but the point is. I think there is a resurgence of the reclaiming of this artistic expression within the local church that I think is a generational collision that we're kind of dealing with right now, and that's right. part of the reason why we're, why we created the show in the first place is because we, we believe so strongly that in every local church there should be, ought to be, an expression of uh, the next generation's artistic sort of input. right That's great. I mean, They have so much to offer, and we don't ever really tap into it, either out of fear or jealousy or the unknown or the inability to control or whatever it is. Yeah. But I think this is such a golden opportunity for us as as the church global, the church local, to really embrace and grab into this artistic expression, the reclaiming. Of this artistic movement in the local church. So,
2: well, if you think about it, like Jesus said, or the the acts and Joel say, respectively, old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. Jesus said, the wise teacher pulls from old and new. And so we've really tried to do that. Like, on one hand, our our TV producer, who also does mini movies, he is in his 60s, 50s, maybe 50s. Um, Our another videographer we have is maybe like 40 something. And then our videographer that does a video every week for us, he's 22, 23. So, and and a lot of my videographer friends are in their young twenties that we outsource to. Um, So I think there's that power in this tri-dimensional or tri-generational thing, like, you know, where you get middle age, a a bit older and younger. Um, And then when you can, and that's really a heart of mine is I want to bridge a generational gap. Like, I think some people are just into social media. Well, I'm like, no, I want to use TV and radio. You have to get past the gatekeepers there. And that has a level of credibility that if I'm just doing a selfie of myself on Instagram, it might not have the same level of, well, how do I know I should even listen to this? I think you can use all the mediums necessary that are accessible to you. Jesus actually said the wise teacher pulls from treasures new and old. So I definitely believe in doing that as well. And speaking of Erwin McManus, in optimist bits i quoted his book the artisan soul so i think that's good that you that you brought him up because he's somebody who's very much into the arts you know so i think we are seeing progress being made
1: i think so too and i think i mean we've had several people on the show madeline Carroll, we've had uh grayson russell we've had um sammy rodriguez i mean all of these people who are involved in in especially in film in, in the movie industry and just kind of the resurgence that's happening. It's almost apostolic in a sense, you know what I'm saying? Like they're becoming apostles in these mediums that, that, uh, you know, no one else can tap into or or has access to. I don't know. It's kind of neat. So
0: you're right. You're right. Yeah, no. And and it, it excites me that you, you see, and, and this is what's uh, interesting about, but what you're doing, Ben, is I feel like there's a gravitational pull to what's trending. Like, and so, like, everybody's moving to TikTok right now. Yeah. Um, and we've had some people on who do have great TikTok ministry, like and Grayson Bearden and Ellie Bonilla is yeah, yeah, really yeah. taking that over. Yeah, I love
2: Grayson, yeah.
0: And, yeah. and uh, Rashawn Copeland and some of these guys who have excelled in TikTok. But, but what you're saying, and this is a great conversation, is, is you're going to go to all the medium. You're, you're not – I mean, there's this sort of belief that you niche down but you're you're not just niching down on YouTube, which has kind of been your bread and butter on the socials. You're yeah. going, hey, if I can get in that space and get the gospel spread, I'm going to go there. Right. If I can get in this space with the gospel, I'm going to go there. And it's I hate to say opportunistic—that always sounds bad—but it's no, opp- I know what you mean. Opportunistic of you to go, hey, I see an open door. Let's let's try to walk through it with the gospel, and that's valuable.
2: I mean, look at what Paul did. He did he went to a synagogue first? First thing he would do when preaching would be to go to a synagogue then he would do the school of tyrannus then he would do the Areopagus with the Athenian metaphysicians at Mars Hill where he would go up to the place where the philosophers were blogging as it were you know yeah, so yeah. he used the secular medium of a hill of philosophy and then a Jewish synagogue and then he'd go to the Jerusalem temple where he was accused of bringing Trophemus the Ephesian there and and I think like he used all the mediums necessary to him and I think what you said also is I want to point out is there is a there is a predilection toward what's trendy, and uh, what I think our generation really needs as well is timeless truths for truthless times because mm-hmm. what's timeless is always timely and uh, that's why I just want to like introduce like i I love John Trapp he was an author six from sixteen hundred a d you know I love these old authors that have so much wisdom to give us, we can tap in the minds of the greats, but so often we're scrolling, nothing wrong with scrolling necessarily, you know? But like, look at all this wisdom we could latch onto if we're willing to, like, like we said earlier, have grit, have perseverance, and not just go with what's trending, but what's timeless. And I think that's something our generation really needs. And that's something I'm trying to do. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we have more information and knowledge at our fingertips than any generation in human history, and we take advantage probably of less of that knowledge and an opportunity maybe than any generation in history. So, hey, man, I, phew, I really wish we had, there are several questions I still want to unpack, but I know we're running out of time here on the can show. Text later. I can text them later <laughs> and we'll have conversations. I mean, we didn't even get to the calling piece, the vocation yep. piece, none of that, but but I think, you know, I know, that, I know that we're pressed for time and you have a, an, another engagement that you got to get to. But we do want to ask uh, one final question. It's a final question we ask uh, every, every guest on the show. And uh, so we, we, we were going to ask you, what is one thing that you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom?
2: Well, I'm probably an unorthodox guest in this sense because I actually gave my first sermon in third grade Started traveling and speaking at 16 and became a pastor, a teaching pastor when I was a senior in high school. So I just kind of went like even as a high schooler, I became a minister. So um, I actually didn't attend university. I didn't attend college. I more followed my curiosity and the reading of books. Uh, But what I actually found, and I'm very zealous about this with like the reforming of the educational system is more and more to follow your curiosity like that is so huge if it's just part of a curriculum to read a certain amount of books that I didn't like to read very much in middle school or anything it was when I started to read on my own following my curiosity that like okay I like Lord of the Rings the movie I want to read the book Lord of the Rings leads me to C.S. Lewis because I know that Tolkien and Lewis were friends Lewis says his master is George MacDonald who came on in the 1800s and George MacDonald, I found out, influences G.K. Chesterton. Okay, so now I'm in the early 20th century, and Chesterton is quoting H.G. Uh, Wells. So I read about H.G. Wells, who invents the Martian, and and then you start to like make all these connections, and you you, it's pretty crazy. Like when you follow your curiosity, it's an endless well, and then you find out, oh, okay, wait, these guys were speaking at the same time that Emerson was writing about German idealism that he mm. got from Europe, and that's all to read about Emerson, and then then you're just off to the races so I think the thing that I learned outside of school is that when you follow your curiosity you'll actually learn a whole lot more than if stuff is like legalistically shoved down your throat and I know that again I know that school is school don't get me wrong but um but I just think there is power in following your curiosity even if it feels like like I remember I started off reading just Star Wars star Wars novels. It's like, well, what good is this going to do in the world? Well, then I spent seven years writing a fantasy trilogy that I'm still waiting to get published. No one wants to publish it, but basically like, you know what I mean? It does lead you to like God put curiosity, not in your heart, not to frustrate you, but to fulfill you. So
1: follow it. That's so cool. Yeah, that's that's good. so good. You,
0: man. Great statement there,
1: man. Hey, it's we right have there. we have loved having you on the show. I I kind of wish we had a part two coming, and maybe we'll let's set that up it. at some well, point. Let's, let's
2: do another one. Just yeah, we me. we will do we can do a part two.
1: That sounds like a plan. We'll get that set up, but we we'll go. but for today we're we're out of time, and we so are. so as we love to say here at the Leadership Drip, man, you always have a seat at the table, and it has been a joy. Uh, talking to you, learning from you, and just really kind of collaborating. So yeah. thank you so much for Thanks, being man. on. Thanks,
2: Gosh, guys, thank you. I had so much fun. You guys are really, really fun to talk to. And it's not its not often that you get to go into, like, local church dialogue with the beauty of skating. So that, was, right. that <laughs> was fun. Like, I had a blast. I love what you guys are doing. And um, I'm excited for all that's going to happen with us in the future.
1: Awesome, awesome, bro. Thank you so much, man. God bless. And uh, we'll be talking soon.
2: Okay.
1: God bless. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.